Hello, and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke, and in this podcast series, I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas, and advice for your medical practice. In the podcast today, we'll be exploring the medical applications of the cannabis sativa plant. Records show use of cannabis from at least the third millennium BC. After a long period of banned use, medical interest in this very interesting plant is now awakened. 144 naturally occurring compounds known as cannabinoids have been associated with the cannabis sativa plant. THC is the best known for its psychoactive effects, but cannabidiol, isolated in 1934 and then synthesized in 1967, has become very interesting for doctors. How it's produced and how it's used for its anti-inflammatory, anti-convulsant, neuroprotective and immunomodulatory effects will be explored further in this conversation with Dr. Suit Agarol. Please welcome Dr. Sood. Now, Sood Agarol, welcome to Everyday Medicine. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Luke. uh, We're here to talk about a very interesting topic, and that is the topic of uh, cannabidiol use in medicine. And uh, this is a topic that's got a lot of traction over the recent uh, 12 months or so, and uh, you're an expert in this field. Just before I start talking about that subject, uh, you know, I've known you for some years. You're a, you're a specialist in anesthetist. You've been qualified for over 10 years and you're very well respected by your colleagues. Uh, tell me how you move from that field, which you're still in, but also to this field of, of you know, cannabis and, and business. Tell us about that. Okay, that right. So it's, it's quite a long journey, Luke. Um, I guess it, if I take it right to the beginning, so even prior to becoming a specialist anesthetist, I was already involved in the commercial side of healthcare. So I've been involved in the commercialization of healthcare for over 20 years now. And um, whilst du- during my anesthetic registrar training, I probably had two or three other businesses on the go and some of them had up to 30 employees. Um, you know, Many of them were quite successful and had reasonable cash flows. And at the point that I became a specialist, I continued that interest whilst having both, I guess, a clinical appointment and also having commercial directorships as well. And it wasn't until 2016 that cannabis was first being legalized that I joined the Can Group, which was the first Australian company to get a cannabis license to cultivate. Mm-hmm. I joined them as their medical director or chief medical officer. And yes. it was during that that I got my exposure. Now, the, the actual introduction to how I got there was actually through a friend of a friend. In mm-hmm. fact, the CEO happened to be the brother of a surgeon that I work with. And so it was, it was, you know, it was fairly coincidental. Degrees of separation. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you've you've now you've now been on a on a incredible sort of pathway and journey with uh, with the company Canvalate, yeah. which has been very well regarded um, by the business community. And to talk a little bit about cannabis and how we can use it in medicine, yeah. uh, you know, we know it's been uh, it's been a product that's sort of come out of Central Asia. I think uh, you know there've been records of it being used as far as three thousand years ago, and we know that there are about one hundred forty four natural occurring compounds, but THC and cannabidiol are the two that are really uh, well-known and worked out and have uh, have applications. THC is the psychoactive component. Cannabidiol, I think, is the one that we're using in medicine. Can you talk us about, walk us through this, tell us about these two compounds, sure. and we'll ask you how they, how they can be applied to medicine. Absolutely. So if we uh, broaden the whole discussion and we divide the whole cannabis family into cannabis and hemp, so can, uh, ultimately they are the same plant. The word hemp is used to describe any plant from the cannabis sativa family, 
which has less than 0.2% THC. So essentially it's a plant that produces uh, an oil which is almost pure CBD. Uh, when that has high, progressively higher fractions of THC, we refer to it as the cannabis plant. So mm. if we deal with hemp-derived CBD, which is by far the most common nutraceutical or health product in the world now. So hemp-derived CBD cells globally are bigger than vitamin C, uh, bigger than vitamin D, certainly bigger than cod liver oil. It's a, it's a massive phenomenon. Mm. It's estimated that about 10% of people in the UK buy legal hemp-derived CBD, and it's somewhere between 8 and 15% of, uh, of people in the US and Canada that use daily or at least twice weekly hemp-derived CBD products. Okay. So it's, it's, it's very, very common and very, very large. And mm. people are taking it for a whole variety of different functions. Mm. It's, and many of these have not been proven in clinical trials, and many of them are quite anecdotal. But I guess judging by the sheer volume of people taking them in those countries, there must be some benefit there that they're deriving, even if it's a self-perceived benefit. So if we stick with CBD first, which is the shortened form for cannabidiol, and that's certainly the most popular product from a medical perspective. Now, it's a very potent anti-inflammatory, but it's got quite a rubbery effect that even if you took it in profound overdose, like let's say you took 100 times the, pres the typically prescribed dose, you wouldn't suffer anything apart from you know, a period of drowsiness. So it is quite benign. Safe, a safe product. Yeah, it's a very safe product. And the, and the maximum tolerated dose would be in excess of 500 times what the normal prescription dose is. So it's, it's something that's got a very, very, very sort of wide therapeutic window. So and now CBD, the most popular use that if you ask the average doctor, what would he know about CBD use? He'll talk about it being used for pediatric epilepsy because mm. that's the, you know, globally the most recognized use for it. So there's an approved drug called Epidiolex, which is FDA registered. It's currently going through the TGA at the moment, and it's expected to be registered with the TGA and maybe even available on the PBAC, the, the Pharmaceutical Benefits Advisory Committee approval, which is the PBS, uh, within the next 12 months. Now, the, the reason that has been shown to be very useful for pediatric epilepsy is that CBD basically works to silence the brain in terms of excessive electrical activity and also reduce CMRO2 the cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen consumption. And so all the sort of negative and uh, self-propagating effects of electrical currents in the brain, which keep causing epilepsy, epileptic seizures to continue or leading to status epilepticus, can be terminated. And it's been found to be a very fast and very effective method of terminating those prolonged seizures. So this is, what it's like a, this is like the dimmer switch effect. And, and we were talking before about the receptors that we know uh, are, are activated or uh, are utilised by this product. T tell us about those. There's, there are two receptors that we know about. Yeah, so there's a CB1 and a CB2 receptor that, that have been identified. And, and these, are, these were sort of identified in the late 90s. So it was after many of us, including myself, had left medical school. So we didn't learn much about these. Now, the, the CB1 receptor is essentially mainly located in the CNS. So that's um, quite well defined. And the agonist that would normally be very active at that CB1 receptor is well known to be THC. And that tends to cause the psychoactive effects, mm, mm. the effects that uh, many people typically associate with cannabis, mm, uh, which mm. is that kind of sensory changes, maybe mild delusionary or hallucinogenic behavior. And, uh, and things that would even include some degrees of confusion or, mm. or, or even intoxication. The CB2 receptor is more located in the peripheral nervous system and also located more, more specifically 
in the cell-mediated immune system. So macrophages and lymphocytes. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. macrophages is probably the most common place, mm-hmm. and it's effectively the antidote to the cyclooxygenase system which generates prostaglandins. It's the system that was designed to terminate the inflammatory system. So when you have a typical injury, uh, there's the local effect causes increased cyclooxygenase activity, and normally that results in a variety of different prostaglandins which cause chemotaxis, and uh, immune infiltration and acute phase proteins to arrive there. The standard termination process is your body's own endocannabinoids. These are endocannabinoids that your body generates, not from exogenous sources. That terminates that when it believes that the inflammatory processes are no longer needed. Now we can now influence the termination of an inflammatory process by taking exogenous or phytocannabinoids, which are plant-derived cannabinoids, Mm -hmm. and then simulating that same effect which physiologically happens. I think there's been the stigma with cannabis probably because of the THC and the psychoactive effect. So we're, we're talking about the use of the cannabidiol. It's very important to make that point. We're not talking about yes. THC here. And we've just mentioned how it has this anti-inflammatory effect, particularly in the brain. And I think we've talked about um, this chronic traumatic encephalopathy that may have some role uh, in in relation to uh, concuss- concussive injuries and so forth. Oh, we've mentioned epilepsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what other sorts of uh, medical applications yeah. Could it be applied to? So, so probably globally, the four most common reasons people take CBD would be number one is an, as an adjuvant to chronic pain. So people take it as an opioid reduction mechanism and also just to improve the analgesic efficacy of their whatever their underlying mm. tablets are taking, whether mm. it's opioids or whatever. The second most common reason is anti-anxiety. So one thing about CBD is that you get this very deep-seated anxiolytic effect and it's got a mild degree of hypnosis associated with it, but it's profoundly anxiolytic. And no one quite knows where that works. And that works with CBD without any THC as well. So it's clearly some form of CNS effect, but it's very hard to work out where that is occurring. Thirdly is insomnia. So I guess most people probably associate cannab- the cannabis plant with making you want to you know, become tired and go to sleep. But it's that, that hypnotic effect which causes, uh, I guess, a very undisturbed sleep and also can shift you into some of the deeper forms of REM sleep quite quickly, uh, you know, has become an almost a nocturnal or a once nightly medicine for people to sort of naturally drift off into a deeper sleep. And what, I guess the measure of quality of sleep that most people use is that latent time between the time their head hits the pillow and the time they, they achieve deep sleep. That's, sh- that's already been shown in quite a few trials to be shortened by CBD. So you're quite happy with the degree of research that in terms of some of these applications, this is one of the things that medical people always raise, isn't it? What is the research behind it? Mm-hmm. it, it it's it's um, hit the market and there's been a lot of interest in it. But but in terms of clinical research and double-blind randomised control trials, are we seeing those coming forth or are they, is it a work in progress? Yeah, so, so I guess there's been a problem here is that there's... There's, I guess, three types of clinical trials. There's the clinical trials which are generally run by academic institutions, which are showing that the cannabis plant has a benefit for a particular indication. And the problem with that is the cannabis plant has so many different varieties of both cannabinoids and also the quality of the product, depending on the source. So unless you really specify the source and the source has got some quality origins where it's reproducible and has no batch-to-batch variability, it'll rarely ever meet those efficacy endpoints yes. in the way that other that's tablets do. That's a recognised producer. That's a recognised producer. A, a, a licensed yeah. producer. Absolutely. So mm. that's always going to be one issue. The second thing is the cannabis plant it probably isn't a very potent drug as a monotherapy. 
So it probably will never ever be seen. I mean, I think the pediatric epilepsy was one of the few indications where if you took it in a megadose, that you could actually meet an efficacy endpoint to make it a registrable drug. Mm. There aren't mm. too many of those efficacy endpoints you could ever reach to reach a registrable drug for say insomnia or as a sole analgesic. It's just not that effective as a sole agent. But as a combined or an adjuvant agent with other things, it does actually become very, very effective. And for things like nausea and vomiting, secondary to chemotherapy and so yeah, forth. Absolutely. Yes. So how is it how is it administered? Is it we've got tablet forms or we've got liquid forms? What what other forms have we, do we have? So so one of the problems with cannabis is that it's profoundly lipophilic. So it's hydrophobic. And also it's got very low bioavailability in the intestinal system. So if you do take it orally, if you take an oral mixture of it, only somewhere between 5 and 15% actually becomes part of the active fraction. So you need to take many times the actual dose you want to reach that plasma level to become useful. And because it's quite expensive to make, because it's from a natural plant source, it's extracted, mm. it's purified, you're then really having to use somewhere between, say, 8 and 10 times the actual dose you finally need, which most of it is broken down by the liver and the first pass effect. Also, when you take it orally or gastroorally, the problem is you get a very slow onset and you might get a peak effect which might not occur for three to four hours. I guess historically people were taking this through an inhaled mechanism. So I guess outside of the, the medical fraternity in the more nutraceutical or alternative medical uh, practitioner's sphere, it would be taken inhaled. That can be mm. combusted through a smoked format. It can be vaped where you've literally got cannabis oil that's heated and you have some form of drawover to take the vapor fraction mm. into your lungs. Mm -hmm. uh, and look, and there's a whole variety of other different uh, methods of taking it, including soft gels, capsules, etc. Some people even use topical or, or transdermal. Absolutely. Is there an issue with uh, with tachyphylaxis uh, and uh, you know t t tolerance to the drug? Tell us about that. Yeah, very much so. So m many people, uh, because it is very lipophilic and because it does induce the cytochrome of the liver, many people find that the That's dose fifty. The CP450? CP450. Yeah, most people do find that the dose required to give a given efficacy point does increase. So they do develop tolerance. And that, that's shown to be quite rapid sometimes. So the dose that they may start at, you know, say 10 milligrams per day, you know, let's say 10 milligrams QID for the first few months, they may find that can even escalate 10 times what they were originally using. But we can be reassured because it's got this um, wide margin of safety. Very, very wide margin yes. of safety, yeah. Very large therapeutic window, forgiving yes. therapeutic window. We've seen, it, uh, we've seen it being used widely now in Canada, UK, uh, about 33 states in the United States, Europe. Uh, in Australasia, where, what's, what's happening in our sphere of the world? Right, okay, so uh, at the moment, it's really increasing in Australia. So there's been about 40,000 prescriptions to Australians prescribed. And just to give you a comparison, uh, the Australian population is about 25 million. What people estimate to be the number of people that will probably benefit from cannabinoids of some description is about 10% of the population. So they think 2.5 million people will, you know, could benefit from that. And that might be for a variety of mild form of different issues. And they think about 1% of the total population will probably be eligible for a prescription pharmaceutical. So that's, you know, again, you know, not a huge number, but 250,000 people is still mm. still a reasonable number of, it is. of, of Australians. It's a potential benefit, yes. And at the moment, we're at about somewhere between 40 and 50,000 people have commenced cannabis. Some have continued, some have stopped. 
but that's so we're probably somewhere around one fifth of the total market size that will be established, say, within another two years. So how do GPs access this? It, it's a complex system, which hopefully will be made a little bit easier. I know your company, Campbellate's involved in yeah. providing very efficiently uh, scripts for patients. Um, some of my patients have accessed uh, CBD oil via Campbellate and, uh, uh, and we're very, very pleased with that service. T- tell us how the GPs will go about trying to obtain yeah. CBD. Okay. So, so the challenge is that it is... It is a, it's legalised in Australia. So a lot of doctors are not aware that it's been legalised in Australia. It is absolutely legal in Australia. Number two, a doctor can prescribe whatever dose and whatever, uh, I guess, brand of cannabis that he chooses. And there are many different brands on the market. Uh, one estimate, someone estimate, there's about 50 or so different brands. Mm-hmm. Thirdly is that because it's not a registered medication on the ARTG, that's your strain Register of Therapeutic Goods, you have to prescribe it in a way and then get it approved through the TGA under a special access scheme, similar to sort of rare oncology drugs or other non-registered pharmaceuticals. And the method that you do that is, you would normally write a prescription for the product that you want, the one that you feel comfortable with, and initiation dose as well. And then that is sent to the TGA, which can be done online now on the TGA online portal, and you write your clinical justification for doing so as well. So you might say this patient's got chronic pain. Uh, it's not been fully resolved with their opioids and their concurrent non-steroidals. So you've decided to add cannabis in as a form of adjuvant therapy. You make the application and typically within a day or two, the TJ writes back and says approved or disapproved. And then your prescription with that SAS approval can be taken by the patient to a pharmacy mm. and they can collect mm. their prescription. The challenge is most pharmacies do not stock it. Mm. And also the other challenge... It's still a process, isn't it? It's a process, and also because it's quite paperwork-heavy, a lot of doctors don't have the time, and I guess the the financial remuneration for doing all that work is not there. So many of the doctors, and in fact we've done about 50% of all prescriptions written in Australia, just use the Canvalate service, because it's a free and and back-office service, to outsource that problem and risk to them. Yeah, that's a big advantage. Huge event. Yeah, so yeah. they just literally log on to the Campbellate website and then... Where, where do you see this progressing over the next couple of years? Do you see this process becoming a little bit easier, particularly as the clinical research is strengthened and we're seeing its use in all these different uh, clinical uh, applications? Yeah, it does seem like a very complex process at the moment. Yeah, I think there's probably going to be there's probably going to be two major changes. One, I think, will be early next year and one will be early the year after. So the biggest change happening early next year is that the TGA is down scheduling CBD or pure CBD to what's called Schedule 3, which means over the counter and behind the pharmacy counter. So similar to, you know, Voltar and Rapid, mm-hmm. you still involve a clinical interaction with a pharmacist, but it doesn't need a doctor's prescription to get. That's going to be low-dose CBD, what I described as the hemp-derived CBD earlier on. Yes. You'll be able to get over a pharmacy counter without a doctor's prescription. And that'll be used for what things like anti-inflammatory effects. So yes. It has migraine headaches. Mild, mild pain, mild to moderate pain, mm. um, insomnia, mm. anxiety, and probably some kind of mild irritable bowel mm. type mm. So upsets or mm. gastric upsets. And people are expecting there to be roughly somewhere between 3 and 5% of the Australian population will use that in year one post-legalisation as a Schedule three drug. It's a very exciting field, so Absolutely. I'm very glad you've come in and spoken to me today about this. And you know, maybe we can get you back in and talk a bit more about this and a little bit down the the track as um, the the science and the um, the whole subject progresses. Just to escape from all the um, the business uh, headaches that you have and, and the anaesthetic headaches that I give you, um, 
T- tell me what, what do you do? What you're, uh, you've got a podcast you read or, or listen to or a book that you read. T- tell us about the books you're reading at the moment. Yeah, right, sure. So um, I guess I've been involved in startup culture for you know, two decades of my life now. So many of the books I read are actually nonfiction and they're mostly about acquiring specific skill sets. Uh, and so, you know, at the moment I'm spending a lot of time reading books about um, changing the habits of other people or inducing behavioral habits where, which can be transferred into other people. So learning about things like uh, team coach, coach and uh, cl- coach player type relationships. So a couple of good examples is James Clear's Habits book. I find mm. that's, that's been that's called The Power of Habits. Yes. I found that very, very helpful. Um, and a lot of the other books are very specific books on specific forms of marketing, for example, to different populations of people. Um, at the moment, one of the things I found very, very intriguing is a book by a guy called Jack DeLosa, who's an Australian author. And his book goes into a lot of detail about uh, sort of novel forms of marketing that people use these days, using influencers, uh, using social media, and things like that. So I, f- I find that very useful to just, Im- I guess, increase into a sphere of knowledge which wasn't available yes. when, when I was learning. So they're books I'm going to put on my uh, my reading list. Thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. Yep. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation today as much as I have. I find the medical application of phytodrugs extremely interesting and the recent discovery of the endocannabinoid system, the cannabis 1 and 2 receptors, is a fascinating area of research. I uh, will look forward to seeing how the use of CBD expands and is applied to many of the chronic conditions we've discussed today. During the podcast series, we'll be covering a wide range of topics across many special interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at gihealth.com.au.